This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Tesla has paid more than $1 million in an arbitration award to a black former employee who claimed the company failed to stop his supervisors from calling him the N-word at the electric car maker's Northern California plant. The rare discrimination award by an arbitrator to Melvin Barry caps years of complaints from black workers that Tesla turned a blind eye to the commonplace use of racial slurs on the assembly line and was slow to clean up graffiti with swastikas and other hate symbols scrawled in common areas. Joining me is employment attorney Anthony Onsidi, a partner at Proskauer Rose. So was the basis of his complaint that his supervisor referred to him with a racial slur. Well, it's that. I mean, that touched it off. Obviously, there's other evidence that is referred to in the arbitrator's opinion that there were sort of environmental things, that there were apparently plasticas in the workplace, that the, that the use of, of the N-word was somewhat prevalent is what the evidence seems to suggest. This was apparently the line where they produced Teslas. So it's somewhat of a blue-collar environment, and I suspect that might have been the environment that he was working in where these kinds of working conditions were allegedly somewhat more prevalent than one would expect or certainly one would hope in any workplace, regardless of who's working in it. So, yes, he's claiming that he was harassed by it, but the emotional distress that accompanied that resulted in an award of only $100,000 to him. The other claim, the one that actually involves lost wages, which actually was a more valuable claim for him in this case, arises from constructive discharge. So what he argued and succeeded in proving to the arbitrator is that he was forced to resign his employment. That's what constructive termination is because of the intolerable work conditions that existed in the workplace. In its defense, Tesla said that there was no written evidence, even in Barry's medical records, that he had complained to co-workers or human resources about his supervisors addressing him that way. Isn't that usually detrimental to a lawsuit when you don't report it? It is, uh, and obviously his claims might have been stronger, and he might have been able to recover more in the form of emotional distress damages, perhaps, if he had some evidence that he had reported any of this contemporaneously to his supervisors or his coworkers. I also didn't see in the record there was any evidence that there were any photographs of the swastikas that supposedly were in this workplace and the use of the N-word to the extent that it was written anywhere doesn't mean that it didn't exist. But again, now in this day and age when everybody has cell phones and everybody has cell phones that have cameras in them, you would expect that there would be some documentary evidence of some of this. And maybe that did exist. I just didn't see reference to it in the record. I'm wondering if the arbitrator also took into consideration, you know, many of the complaints that have been made against Tesla. Was she allowed to consider that? Because there have been other complaints against Tesla for similar allegations. I suppose so. I mean, I think it gives credibility to the claimant in a case such as this. In other words, if if he alone was claiming that the N-word was used around him or was directed toward him, and that was in a vacuum and that nobody else had ever complained about that, that HR, you know, confirmed that there had never been any other allegations of that, I think it would have it would have undermined his credibility to some extent. So I although I don't think she awarded this primarily because of or even in substantial part because of the existence of these other allegations, 
I think that probably had an influence on her. And by the way, I think if, if there had been a jury in this case, which I, I do think we should mention as well, it would have had a much bigger impact. It would have had a much bigger impact in terms of the outcome in this case. So she said that case law is clear that one instance of a supervisor directing the N-word at a subordinate is sufficient to constitute severe harassment. Is that true? Do you agree with that? Well, I looked at that. Uh, she, she doesn't cite any California case for that. I'm a California lawyer, so I'm most familiar with it. And, you know, California is pretty robust when it comes to these kinds of issues. Uh, I'm not aware of any California case that cites, cites one example as being sufficient. The arbitrator cited a appellate case from the D.C. Circuit and also from the Ninth Circuit. But there was, as I say, no state law case. Now, it may have been because there weren't state law claims at issue in this, so that would make sense that she wouldn't necessarily uh, cite California law. But the law on this is somewhat similar, both under federal and state law, and, and it is as follows. An employee can recover for harassment or discrimination, especially harassment in this context is, is what we're talking about, where there is either severe or pervasive activity by the employer sufficient to alter the terms and conditions of employment, severe or pervasive. So what does that mean? That means that even one instance, if it's severe enough, can trigger a harassment claim, or it could be a multiple number of instances that may not be as severe. Uh, it doesn't have to be severe and pervasive. It just needs to be one or the other. And so I think the argument here was that even the use once of the term of the N-word would be severe enough to trigger liability. And that's kind of what's getting the headlines about this case. But I've never seen a case, at least under California law, that's held that. I'm not aware of a Title VII case holding that either. But I think in this case, in any event, there appears to have been evidence of pervasive use of that word, or so it seems, as well as other discriminatory symbols and words. Now, let's talk about arbitration, because the plaintiff said, looking back at the contract he signed with Tesla, which included an arbitration clause, he says if he knew that it meant giving up the right to sue in court, he's not sure he would have signed it. The reason why you do it is if you don't sign it, you don't get the job. That's the catch-22. So is that true in most of these cases where employees sign contracts? They have to sign the arbitration clause, otherwise they won't get the job. That's correct. And by the way, you know, it's not unique to the employment field. Next time you go to the dentist, notice the forms you're signing. Next time you go to your doctor, notice the forms you're signing. Next time you go to most parking structures, notice the signs that are posted. Arbitration is part of many, many commercial transactions we engage in every single day. Now, employment rights obviously are, I think, more important in many respects than perhaps some of these other rights. But yes, many employers now do require it. And in fact, this is, of course, a hotly contested issue, both at the state and the federal level. California has in the last, I think, five years, three times tried to outlaw pre-dispute arbitration agreements, which is what this is, meaning it's an agreement that was signed before anybody had a, a quarrel with anybody else. It's called a pre-dispute arbitration agreement. Nobody has an objection to a post-dispute arbitration agreement, meaning I know you want to sue me and you can sue me in court, However, let's go to arbitration. The flaw with that, however, is that very few plaintiffs or claimants are going to agree to go to arbitration once they have a lawyer, because very few lawyers on the employee side will ever agree to go to arbitration and will almost always prefer uh, to go to juries. Uh, and that uh, is for a number of reasons, the most important of which is that they, uh, I think, believe, the plaintiff's lawyers, that their chances of ringing the bell, as they say, and getting a large verdict are much greater in front of a jury 
than they are in front of an arbitrator. And I think this is a good example of that, that very principle. And explain why the use of mandatory arbitration by employers has come under fire for sexual harassment complaints during the Me Too movement and for racial discrimination complaints. Sure. Well, I, I think there's a little bit of a shell game going on. I don't know if, if we've said it already, but I'll say it now. I'm a defense lawyer, so I do have my own point of view on these things. The plaintiff's lawyers often say they don't like arbitration because it is a confidential, closed-door, star-chamber kind of proceeding. I'm exaggerating a bit, but that's that's kind of what the plaintiff's lawyers say. And this should all be subject to the sunshine of an open trial. This case puts the lie to that, because by the way, this was an arbitration, and you and I are now talking about this in a very public way, and there obviously have been very many stories on this already in this case that was decided in arbitration. Bloomberg successfully first published this article, and it's been picked up all over all over the world now. So to suggest that arbitration is this deep, dark, secret proceeding is, is just not true. Why is that? Well, because many plaintiff's lawyers once they get a, a verdict like this or an award, as it's called in arbitration, they'll file it in court publicly in order to confirm the award. That's what happened here. That's why it's public. So the notion that somehow this is a secretive proceeding is just not true. The other thing that happens with great frequency is that employees who want to sue their employers, even if there is an arbitration agreement in place, their lawyers will file in court anyway to get the publicity associated with the case. And they will then essentially throw down the gauntlet and make the employer file a motion to compel arbitration in court, meaning that, once again, it's all public. Everyone's going to know what all the allegations are. They may not be able to know exactly what's happening once the case does go to arbitration, but if the judge uh, who receives the filing believes that the arbitration agreement is enforceable, he or she will send the case to arbitration anyway. And you'll end up in arbitration, but the, the so-called secret proceeding will, will no longer be secret because either at the front end or at the back end, the plaintiff's lawyers will do something to make it public. The real reason plaintiff's lawyers don't like arbitration is because of the amount of money that arbitrators award versus the amount of money that juries award. Juries are far more sympathetic to employees who have been fired far more sympathetic to employees who've been harassed, far more sympathetic to employees who've been discriminated against. And they are much more likely to give much greater volume verdicts to uh, employees. In California, and in many jurisdictions, not just California, there's essentially an unlimited amount of money that a jury can award in cases such as this. Number one, every employee in these cases, if they've lost their job, is going to have an expert economist. The expert economist will testify and will put forth the best, most aggressive lost wage analysis that they can come up with. And oftentimes you end up with hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars in lost wages for relatively low paid employees, because what they will do is they will say this employee, and that's essentially what this, this arbitrator did, this employee would have remained employed through the trial. So that's so-called lost wages or, or back pay. And then this employee, you know, probably would have remained employed for the next 10, 15 years, and then they will do a present value of the future lost wages. And it doesn't take a lot of calculation for an expert economist to come up with a very substantial six-figure and sometimes even seven-figure number in terms of lost wages. The second component is emotional distress damages. And there, there's no limit. The employee's lawyer can ask for 
any amount of money they want. Now, this case that we're talking about is very unusual in that the plaintiff's lawyer, and I'm not sure why they did this, stipulated to so-called garden variety emotional distress damages. What that means is that they weren't essentially making a big deal of whatever emotional distress damages this employee suffered. I've actually never seen that because no plaintiff's lawyer, certainly no plaintiff's lawyer in front of a jury would ever stipulate to that. They always will have, in addition to the expert economist, an expert psychiatrist or psychologist who will testify in front of the jury and who will say, this person is a shattered shell of a human being. They can't eat. They can't sleep. They barely recognize their children. I'm obviously exaggerating, but what the expert psychologist will do is tell the jury that this person has been uh, badly injured psychologically and, and every other way by virtue of what happened at the workplace. These psychologists and psychiatrists, for the most part, are professional witnesses. Very few of them are actual practicing physicians. And that's true both on the side of the employee as well as the side of the defense. The defense sometimes will have a, a psychiatrist or psychologist of its own who will also examine the plaintiff and will testify about the extent to which, if any, this individual has suffered. But at the appropriate time during the trial, in a jury trial, uh, the plaintiff's lawyer will ask the jury for almost always hundreds of thousands, and again, sometimes a seven-figure number, for emotional distress damages alone. So now you've already got lost wages in the mid to high six figures, and then you add to that emotional distress damages in the mid to high six figures or maybe more. And then the third element, the sort of the trifecta here, is to try to get punitive damages. And punitive damages then are a combination of those first two elements. The jury is permitted to add the emotional distress damages and the lost wages together and then award a multiple of those two numbers in the form of punitive damages. And that's how you very easily can vault one of these verdicts into the low or even mid seven-figure amount. In this case, he was awarded only $266,000 in damages, but the attorney's fees were $755,000, almost three times his recovery. Is that unusual? It seems like a huge amount of money. It is. What happens, and there was some debate about this, you can see in the opinion from the arbitrator, what some plaintiff's lawyers in California do, at least, and I think this is true elsewhere, the notion that plaintiff's lawyers take these cases on a contingency is true, meaning that they usually just get a percentage of what the employee recovers. When I first started practicing, that was generally a third, usually 33%. I don't know if it's because of inflation or what, uh, but that number or that percentage rather has now creeped up from 33% to in almost all instances, 40%. And I've even heard of plaintiff's lawyers, notable plaintiff's lawyers in California who charge 50%. Wow. 50% of what is recovered by the employee, but they're not done there. What they then do, and I'm not sure most employees even know about this, then they can file their own application for attorney's fees on top of the percentage of the of the recovery. So say the employee recovers a million dollars, the attorney can get up to 40 or 50% of that. So that's four to $500,000. Then they go in and they ask the judge to award them attorney's fees under the statutory scheme that exists. Um, and they can get, in addition to that, then what their hourly rate is. And they don't share that with the employees. They just take that themselves. So yeah. you can get into a situation where the lawyer is getting multiples of what the employee uh, recovers. In this case, as you say, it's more than three times, but it can be four, five, six times. But some some lawyers don't share that 
second component, that is the attorney's fees they get under the statute, with their clients. They take that for themselves, and they also take the percentage of the recovery that the employee is awarded. Tesla has been sued many times for similar allegations to Barry's allegation. And also in 2020, 31 complaints were filed with California's Department of Fair Employment and Housing. Those numbers seem really high. Uh, It's unusual, I think, for a single employer to have even that number or even probably a fraction of that number of complaints. So I'm not sure what's happening there. There is truth, say, only to, you know, half or a third of those claims, and I'm I'm just guessing. That still is a lot in today's workplace, but I I can't offer an opinion as to whether that's something that's actually occurring there or not. But I can just say, you know, I I do nothing all day long but represent employers, and uh, very few clients ever have one of these claims as opposed to multiple claims. Thanks, Tony. That's Anthony on CD of Proskauer. Competing congressional proposals to add federal judgeships give the judiciary its first chance in 30 years for a comprehensive slate of trial court seats. The measures introduced in the House and Senate offer very different assessments of the need to add positions to the district court system. That's where much of federal court business is done. Joining me is Madison Alder, a reporter with Bloomberg Law. So, Maddie, is there a need for more federal judgeships? So despite years of requests from the federal judiciary, um, they haven't gotten new judgeships in more than 30 years. The last judgeship bill was in 1990. And since then, district court caseloads have increased, uh, population has increased, and the courts have been trying to express to Congress that this is really a need of theirs, especially in states like California, for example, which has a number of judicial emergencies. This is something that, you know, they told me recently, uh, you know, even if they get their judgeships filled that are vacant right now, they're still going to need more judges to be able to deal with rising caseloads. The last time that judges were added was when Joe Biden was a senator? That's correct. So I actually found in my research that the last time that a judgeship bill was passed by Congress, a comprehensive judgeship bill, I should note, was in 1990, and that effort was spearheaded by then-Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman and uh, Delaware Senator Joe Biden. It was actually called the Biden Bill for the role that he played in getting it across the finish line. So there are two different proposals or bills. Tell us about them and explain the differences. So the Judges Act is a bill that was introduced in the Senate by Senators Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware, and Todd Young, a Republican from Indiana. And their bill would give the judiciary 77 judgeships. And those judgeships are exactly what the Judicial Conference asked for in its most recent request. The only difference is that they would only start to become available in 2025. And then the second half would become available in 2029, and that's timed after the next two presidential elections. So basically trying to make it as non-political as possible and to be able to get something that that people can agree on. And that also has a companion in the House. Um, It was introduced by Representative Daryl Issa of California, a Republican, and that also has Democratic co-sponsors. So that legislation seems like it's the most likely to maybe get support enough to pass bicameral and bipartisan. But on the other hand, you have a bill that was introduced by House Democrats that would propose 203 judgeships for the federal judiciary immediately. 
And they argue that the judiciary needs more than it's letting on, uh, more than it asked for, because they're using a metric that they changed in 1993 because they felt like they were maybe asking for too many judgeships. So they're indicating, of the House Democrats are indicating, that perhaps the judicial conference and the judiciary need a little bit more help. And they need it now. So they need it as soon as the bill would be passed. Um, of course, that would give Biden 203 judgeships to fill immediately, which uh, Republicans might not be as on board with. We hear all the time about how there is a crisis in this district and that district and how, you know, judges have such heavy caseloads. Why wait so many years before you put these judges in? Why not just at least put some in now? So there have been discussions about this on the Hill, and it seems to be that, you know, people kind of have qualified that the judges would become available for the election winners. That would be the most bipartisan uh, way to deal with this. So before the, the last election, then Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham said that he would be open to adding seats to the judiciary right then if they got some kind of a bipartisan proposal together for the election winner. After that, it becomes a little bit more of a political question because you know exactly who those seats are going to. So when no one knows who is going to win the election, it seems like there's more room for agreement on one of these proposals because you're essentially just giving this opportunity to whoever becomes president. The progressives who said that the judiciary's proposed 8% expansion of the lower courts doesn't meet the needs, how did they come to that conclusion? So they came to that conclusion by using an old metric that the Judicial Conference used to use prior to 1983. So their metric now is 430 filings per judge. And what that means is that at 430 filings per judge, they're basically saying that's too much work. Beyond that would be too much work for a single judge to do. The ideal caseload is 430. So they went back to an older metric that was 400 that they used prior to 1993. And the Judicial Conference itself said in making that change that it was because of the size of of the request, basically alluding to the fact that they were trying to control how big those requests were getting. And Democrats say that the 400 filings per judge is a better way of measuring this because it is the number that they were using before they were maybe factoring in politics. An aide I spoke to said that they could sense some politicking and pessimism in their requests over the last few years even if they might need more judgeships immediately. It's interesting, you spoke to Brookings Institution fellow Russell Wheeler, and he said, if the history of judgeship legislation means anything, it means that you better take your best shot now because you may not get another one. So he's just saying, get whatever you can at this point, pass whatever bill will get approved. I think he's saying the window could be pretty short here, if, if history is any indication. Of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that they couldn't come to another agreement for for some kind of judgeship relief in the interim. But if history is any indication, then this might be the only shot that lawmakers have for quite some time to be able to add seats to the federal judiciary. And if it is the Judges Act, that means that that relief won't come until 2025 and 2029. Are there any moves to increase the number of judges on the circuit courts? So 
in the judicial conference's request, they did also ask for two seats for the Ninth Circuit. This year, they actually decreased that. So their requests happen every two years. They decreased that from the last time they requested. They requested, I think it was five judges for the Ninth Circuit. And this year they said, okay, only two. That didn't make it into either of the proposals. And at a House hearing on lower court judgeships, the Ninth Circuit seemed to pose a sticking point for Republicans. Representative Garaiza, again, the, the Republican from California, he mentioned, uh, you know, splitting the Ninth Circuit uh, might potentially be something that lawmakers would look at if they're going to add more seats to the Ninth Circuit, which has 29 judges. So the Ninth Circuit and circuit court judgeships seem like they might pose enough of a sticking point that that has been separated out into a different issue. So both of these bills focus specifically on the district courts. And tell us how the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court is going. The Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court is looking at different reforms for the, the Supreme Court uh, itself and looking at you know different ways to change the Supreme Court potentially. But ultimately, that, that commission isn't going to make any recommendations. It will uh, provide an analysis of some sort of a lot of, of different proposals on how to change the Supreme Court and present that to Biden, who will ultimately, you know, maybe make some kind of final recommendation. The ball will be in his court there. But a lot of these changes really rely on Congress. So it all comes down to uh, what Congress wants to do. And with a slim Democratic majority, those options seem pretty limited. And we've talked before about how progressives are disappointed with that commission, with people who are on the commission, as well as the fact that they're not going to be making any recommendations. Are progressives still pushing to pack the court, or have they given up on that for now? Progressives are still pushing to to pack the court or expand the Supreme Court and, and add a few more seats. And... Um, it's been, you know, kind of explained to me by some of these groups, like Demand Justice, that this is something that they see as a long-term goal. This is something that they see as, you know, they, they see the reality uh, of, of, of Congress and that, uh, you know, Democrats have uh, uh, the slimmest of margins in the Senate. And uh, this is something that they see as potentially, you know, becoming more popular over time and getting more support over time, but they are still definitely pushing for that. So let's talk now about President Biden is continuing to nominate judges. He's nominated a judge for the Second Circuit who will be a first. Right. So Justice Beth Robinson, who is currently a justice on the Vermont Supreme Court, was nominated for an appeals court seat on the Second Circuit. And she is currently the first openly LGBT judge on on the Vermont Supreme Court, and she would be the first LGBT woman to serve on a federal appeals court in in the U.S. But there is uh, an openly LGBT district court judge already. Well, there have been several, yes. And the the first, though, was Deborah Bass, who was a judge on the Southern District of New York. She was the first openly gay judge-confirmed to a federal court, and she was appointed in, in 1994 and passed away last year. But there have been several LGBT judges, and Biden also nominated another uh, LGBT judge, Charlotte Sweeney, who was nominated to the District of Colorado, would be the first openly LGBT 
U.S. judge in the state of Colorado, according to the White House statement that came out last week. So Robinson is nominated to the Second Circuit, and there are two other Second Circuit nominees making their way through the process. So Eunice Lee uh, was uh, approved over the weekend of her nomination. She was confirmed to the Second Circuit. And the other nominee is Mirna Perez, who is awaiting a vote on, on her nomination. And the Second Circuit is the only circuit court that Biden really has available right now to flip, so to speak, which means that he would be able to make it a, a majority of Democratic appointees rather than a majority of Republican appointees. So that might indicate why there's uh, the speed there of nominations. Uh, I think New York has also gotten nominations into the White House uh, pretty quickly, recommendations into into the White House. But those are, are three nominees that are going for a court that is really a, a chief venue for cases involving corporations and, and Wall Street. Why were there so many vacancies on the Second Circuit? That's a lot, three. So there have actually been two judges recently who stepped down, they took senior status, and passed away shortly thereafter. So Robert Kassaman took senior status in January and passed away this summer. And Peter Hall um, took senior status in March and passed away the following week. And there was a, another judge who has stepped down and taken senior status. But the Second Circuit is definitely dealing with a lot of heartache right now over, over the losses of two of its judges. So these judges would be coming into uh, a circuit in time to help them out with their caseload, um, but also at you know a time of great loss for, for the court community. That's really unusual and quite sad. Thanks, Madison. That's Madison Alder, a reporter with Bloomberg Law. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.